Hello and welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Today, brought to you by Kamut. I'm Joe Robinson. I'm joined by James Spender. Good afternoon, Joseph. How are you doing, mate? I'm good. And this is our Paris-Roubaix special. How exciting. Yes, we get the irony. This is a special dedicated to a race which has been postponed from its usual April date until October. But that doesn't mean we need to forget about this race until autumn. Oh, no. There is still plenty to get excited about. And that includes today's incredible show. Everyone who has ever ridden the cobbles of Paru Bay has a story to tell. And on today's show, we are going to be telling some of those stories. We got in touch with friends of the podcast, including Greg LeMond, Sean Kelly and Magnus Backstead, and many, many more, to relive some of their best and worst moments from the hell of the north. And James and I are even going to share some of our own anecdotes from that race. So, without further ado, let's get into it. First up, we've got Greg LeMond, a three-time Tour de France winner. Greg is better known for his Grand Tour heroics and his ability in the mountains and on the time trial bike. However, Greg was also a pretty handy spring classics rider in his day too. Here is LeMond on his love for Roubaix and how he ultimately was the reason teammate Bernard Hino won the race in 1981. I was first year pro, you know, I'd gone to Belgium as a, that in 78, but I actually met somebody and I came back to Belgium in 79 just to race some cobblestone. So I, I loved the classic. I love Perry, but I love Tour Flanders, but I got in there and we trained under the course before the 81 Perry Bay. And he was that, that, that was his race. He'd never wanted to do, but he said, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to win it. So I made it to about 200 kilometers, 230 in the front. But I was getting cooked, and I told this, and he said, okay, just do an attack. And I did the attack, and uh, he countered, and that's how he won. His, not only how he won his period pay, but it did lead to his kind of more offensive racing. So that was really a fond memory. But another interesting one, but kind of one I always remember as a team, it was Renault, and it was an 84 period pay. Guimard, you know, we had some really – this was a fair as a focus for the team. Finya, myself, Matteo, Voschinek, Pascal Jules. Um, and remember, Guimard, at the time, I even did cyclocross training in the winter. All of his riders, Matteo was multi-time national champion of cyclocross. So there was a, that was a way to keep in shape, but also it was kind of with an eye towards uh, Perrier Bay. But we were all riding really well that year. And I just remember we're all five or six or seven of right there in the top 20, our team. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to the forest of Barnberg and about 400 meters into it, 300, 400 meters. Somebody went down. We all went down. Everybody went down. The whole team abandoned <laughs> from that craze. So that was a big disappointment for Guimard. Uh, but we all went down really hard. Few riders are as associated with a race as big Magnus Backstead is with Barry Roubaix. The Swede was utterly obsessed with racing over the cobbles, devoting his whole career to it. In 2004, his dream eventually came true, crossing the finish line at the infamous outdoor velodrome in Roubaix in first place, winning the Hell of the North. And with victory at Roubaix comes your own winner's plaque in the iconic velodrome showers. Here's Magnus's story of the moment he realised his plaque was next to that of the sport's greatest ever athlete, Eddie Merckx. Walking in the, to the showers the first time, and 
getting that feeling of the heritage that this particular race, you know, has. And I think that's what, why my fascination with it as well is that, you know, you can do a hundred races a year, but there's only one day that looks like that, that has that level of, you know, the cobblestones, the history behind it, the, the history of the, of the region and the roads that we're riding on sort of getting in, walking into the showers and, and it's almost like it still is and still now when I visit the to see my plaque in the shower cubicles it's still the hair stands straight on my arms as I walk in there there's just that vibe in there that is yeah I don't think you can describe it really it's, it's just electric and you could feel all the all the riders have been there before and had that love for it still for me now it's still you know the first time i went in to see the plaque itself in in the shower cubicles i didn't realize that mine is sitting right next to probably the best bike rider that the world has ever seen in eddie Merckx. and i remember sort of yeah just dwelling up you know and and it, that, that was quite a special moment knowing that i was in in that kind of company having won that race so James, we've heard from Greg LeMond and Magnus Backstead, but I know that our dear listeners just want to hear an anecdote from you about Paris-Roubaix. Uh, well, Joe, my anecdote is one word long, tortuous. But other than that, we all know it's really hard. Uh, I've never ridden anything quite so bad as the Arenberg Trench, uh, which is 2.2 kilometres, I think, of um, what looks like uh, old sea defences that someone has just thrown into the floor uh, it is just the most incredible bike-breaking, arm-pumping, spirit-crushing situation uh, I've ever been in. So I don't know how they do that, plus everything else. You know, Mons Provelier is also a really horrible sector, and there are many, many more. So my hat goes off to them. But the thing that I love about Paris-Roubaix, and the thing that I always think of, is just what amazing tech comes out of it. But also the kind of brilliantly sad stories about when it fails. Uh, and so, uh, we, you know, everyone's heard of Hinkapi and his fork steerer snapping off when he was riding a Trek bike back in 2006. And he was doing really, really quite well in that race. Um, and that was curtains for a podium for him, which is very sad. Um, and that snapped because Trek gave him a fork from their commuter bike, which I find kind of faintly hilarious. Uh, not for not for Big George, of course. And uh, that was in order to be able to get the tyre clearances that they were hoping for for that day. And that commuter fork just evidently wasn't strong enough. Uh, and then fast forward um, eight years and the same thing happens to Nicky Terpstra. Specialised have got their Future Shock original version. The 2.0 version is out and that doesn't have a failure point located just above the head tube, which is where it failed for Nicky Terpstra. And again, pitching over the handlebars. But then the, the saddest one for me, I think, is uh, Bianchi and the full suspension bike that they gave Johan Museo in 1994 because suspension had come into Paris-Roubaix in 1991. Le Monde had RockShox suspension forks. People laughed him out of town. They were like, mate, what are you doing? In 1992, they weren't laughing because Gilbert de Clos Lasselle had taken Paris-Roubaix on the same pair of forks and they subsequently won in 93, I believe, as well. So anyway, that ushered in this era of suspension is going to be fast. Bianchi made this wonderful full suspension bike, 
last minute the chain set wouldn't fit they changed the chain set over for different size chain rings so the mechanic in his infinite wisdom you know bianchi had been working on this thing for months and months and months and it's cost them a huge amount of money and this guy gets the bike he sticks it in a vice and he crushes the chain stay on the drive side to make room for the chain rings so they don't drag on the frame lo and behold he's created a failure point poor old johan bowling on the cobbles happy as larry and then the thing breaks off he goes binned off that bike, changed to a different one, and that was kind of the end of full suspension for a long, long time at Paris-Roubaix. But, you know, suspension is coming back. We're seeing more and more of it. Uh, we've seen Pinarello do stuff with suspension on their um, their, their Dogma KS, and, you know, long may these innovations continue, because that's what I love, is seeing wacky bikes being raced in stupid conditions. That's Paris-Roubaix. Just a reminder that today's Roubaix special podcast was made possible by our friends at Camus. Camus is an app that lets you find, plan and share adventures with the Easy Route Planner. Driven by a desire to explore and powered by the outdoor community's recommendations, it's Camus' mission to inspire great adventures, making them accessible to all. For me, I'm personally a huge fan of their community recommended highlights feature, it means that even if I'm riding in somewhere completely new, anywhere around the world, I'm able to find the best place to stop for some coffee and some cake. Now, in homage to the best race in the cycling calendar, Paris-Roubaix, Cyclist and Camus want you to plan and ride your own Roubaix-inspired route this weekend. Just because the pros have to wait until October doesn't mean we have to. Cobbles, gravel, byways, particularly pothole main roads, the lot. Once you've got your route and you've ridden it, be sure to tag the Cyclist Magazine page on Kamut so that we can see the very best rides. If you've never tried Kamut before, well, why not? Give it a go. Sign up at kamut.com and use the code CYCLISTPOD to unlock a free region map bundle. That offer is valid only for new Kamut users and is redeemable up until the 31st of December this year. All the teaser sees and links are in the episode description below. Former pro rider turned YouTube star Phil Guyman is what you would consider to be the complete antithesis of the type of rider suited to Paris-Roubaix. However, with rider injuries and illnesses plaguing the Cannondale team in 2016, the American climber was drafted in as a last-minute replacement for the Hell of the North. Here is his story of that day. I'll read it from my book, Draft Animals, which is, I think, where I told the story best. Um, a little context. The, uh, number one, I'm a climber. I've never done any kind of uh, a Roubaix-style cobblestone race. Number two, they called me 40. It was a Friday. The, the race on a Sunday, they called me on a Friday morning to tell me I was going. So here's the thing about Perry roubaix It would be an honor to line up at such a historic race, and I was excited for it. But sending a climber to Roubaix is sort of an insult, the equivalent of benching a baseball player if the bench is a painful 260 kilometers long, or putting a draft animal out to pasture. Half of our sprinters were sick, and JV would be hit with a 5,000 euro fine from the UCI if he didn't start a full team. So when I finally got the call for a race I dreamed of as a teenager, it wasn't because I was ready and they needed me. It was more of a booty call, when a douchebag strikes out at the bar and just wants someone to come over. Yo, you awake? Well, I was awake, leaving Girona with a backpack containing my passport, one set of race clothes, spare underwear, 
a t-shirt, and a bar of dark chocolate. My teammates felt bad for me when I arrived, but they patted me on the back for having the guts, and the media loved the story of my last-minute call-up, starting a hashtag PrayForPhil campaign on Twitter. Someone compared it to losing my virginity to Ron Jeremy. There was no time to try out the Roubaix-specific bike or preview the cobblestone sectors, and let's not pretend that one ride would have made me any more prepared. In fact, you could argue that it would spoil the surprise. Confession. That night, I still imagined myself winning. I tease the guys as they tape their knuckles before the race, like boxers getting ready for a fight. Some puffing prescription asthma inhalers or taking Advil like it would make a difference. Wouter Whippert and Ryan Mullen had been targeting this race, and they were glad I was there to help everyone relax. But even I got nervous when Megalius told me to make the early break. The breakaway is a tall order when 100 guys are fighting to get there. But guess what? This climber did it. I fought for the front and read the attacks, and I even got on TV if anyone in the States happened to be awake at 3 a.m. Then the break got caught, and the rest of my day was a perfect metaphor for my racing career. If you're not in the top 20 going into the cobble section, you're just part of a mile-long line of shrapnel. Someone crashes, you slam your brakes, you work your way around them, and you catch up to the front guys just as the next cobbles start so you can get stuck behind crashes again. You repeat this process until you can't see the front anymore, and soon you're just riding as hard as you can, dodging drunk fans in the streets while team cars work their way around you. If you're me, your seat slipped when you, put a, when you hit a pothole five minutes into the race, so your balance is off and your muscles are cramping from a tweaked position. You're also cross-eyed from an hour in the breakaway, you've never ripped a turn on that bike or the Roubaix-specific wheels and tires, and you weren't even supposed to be there that day, so of course you slide into a hay bale in a dusty turn. I kept riding, just hoping to finish, until I realized I'd missed one of the three million turns and I'd gone off course somehow. I was about to ask a stranger for directions when the team car happened to pass me on the way to a feed zone. I'd never felt more defeated than when I climbed into that back seat, but the soigneurs cheered me up. They said they were pounding the roof yelling legend when they heard my name in the break, a reminder that friends were surely cheering and toasting me at McKiernan's Irish pub in Girona, and what more can you really ask for? They posted a photo of me safely in the back seat with a Coke, captioned, He's alive! Hashtag pray for Phil. My flight home wasn't first class, but the team did spring for a seat with extra legroom, and I ate a whole bar of dark chocolate. British track star Rob Howes rode Paru Bay three times during his career, and on every occasion was a DNF. However, such is the allure of the Queen of the Classics, Rob is still utterly in love with the race. Here are his memories of his Roubaix debut in 2001. April the 15th, 2001. That was the date of my first of three Perry roubaix with uh, Team Cofidis. 254 kilometres that year, 158 miles in, in old money. And uh, my journey to Roubaix started a couple of weeks before, where I was performing well in, uh, in some of the Belgium commesses and uh, some of the smaller races. They needed a rider. And, well, I was the man for the job, apparently, or so they thought. Uh, anyway, the week preceding uh, Roubaix was Tour of Flanders, which, uh, which I competed in. And then on the Wednesday was Gent-Wevelgem. And then from there, I travelled down with the team to the hotel in Compiègne to start three days of reconnaissance for Roubaix. And it was absolutely incredible. To say I was like a kid in a sweet shop is a bit of an underestimation. But uh, the, the first time I realised just how big this race was, was turning up to the hotel and seeing the amount of vehicles that Cofidis had. Two trucks, they threw everything at it. Both mechanics trucks. There were 17 cars. All the sport directors turned up on the day. And um, it really was throw everything at this race. 
On the Thursday, we did a reconnaissance, even driving over some of the earlier sections of, of Pave, or sectors as they call them. The sport directors were having to pick their way across in the team cars. And I'm thinking, guys, in a few days' time, we're going to be racing over this on 25 mil tyres. And we jumped out. Um, at one point to to do some riding over these. Forest of Arenberg, almost impossible to ride across, but to race, not so much of a problem where you have to because they barrier it off. And when you went through there with the crowds on the Sunday, on the day of the race, it's the only thing I can describe it. I would imagine a little bit like racing the Tour um, up Alpe d'Huez or something. The crowd just lifted you and you just kind of went across these cobbles but in in training very difficult to do they are so big we they call them baby's heads some of them are bigger and the gaps between them were ginormous but at one point during this reconnaissance on the thursday i turned around looked and there were 14 vehicles following us i counted them down two of our own um with mechanics and support staff but the rest were press and it's the first time and only time really that I'd seen that. And that just shows how big this race was and how important it was for our team. Quite incredible. We did end up uh, on the day, Chris Pierce getting a, a top 10. Philip Goldman also, uh, God rest his soul, he is no longer here. He was in the, the main group for quite a while. But the race itself was won by Cervais Carnarvon. And if you look up 2001... Paris-Roubaix, you'll see the photos because the rain, the weather was horrendous, so bad that they actually took three sectors of Pave out and they had to swap them because the, the weather was so bad. But Cervais Carnarvon, 6,045 minutes ahead of his own teammate, Johan Museo. One or two of you may have heard of him. And Roman Van Steins, a little lesser known rider, but uh, also a teammate of Cervais Carnarvon. But he was, at the time, current world champion. But all in all, an incredible race. And, uh, yeah, my first of three. Very happy to have started them indeed. So, Joseph. Yes. I know that you've ridden Paris-Roubaix yourself. Not the professional race, obviously, but one very closely linked, the sportive, the same course. So tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, what was it like for you? Well, first of all, I have ridden it twice. Twice? I have ridden the, the event twice. And, I, and let's be honest, I could have ridden a professional event because... To this day, my Arenberg, my Forest of Arenberg Strava time is faster than former World Tour Pro Lawrence Tendam, top ten finisher at the Tour de France. So let that be said on record. Um, but yeah, it's a incredibly hard sportif, one of the, probably the hardest riding I've ever done. Um, but I don't want to bore you with that because we know it's hard, don't we, James? We know that it's a it's a tough tough event to do. What I want to talk, talk about is the experience I had on the second time I did the sporty which was in 2016 and what can only be described as the most old school cycling preparation for a big day on the bike so the night before James we've sort of me and my me and my father we we rode uh, drove over to France from the UK to ride the sporty on the Saturday so we've arrived on Friday fresh-faced and checked into our hotel in the little village of Hem, which is just outside of Roubaix, and you'll know it because it's the penultimate section of cobbles in the race. So we've checked into our hotel, and unfortunately, due to um, a sort of a food hygiene check, the restaurant of the hotel had had to shut. <laughs> so um, we couldn't eat in the hotel, so we had to walk into him to try and find a restaurant. And obviously, we've got 145 kilometers on the bike the next day, four or five hours of really intense riding. So we wanted to get a good, nutritious meal. Turns out, 
that the village of Hem only has one restaurant, and it's called the Brasserie de la Marie. Now, the Brasserie de la Marie would not have looked out of place in Aloalo, mainly because the interior of the place had not been updated in the last 50 years. Anyway, we, we get to the front of this, this restaurant. I walk in and I have, you know, I can do a little bit of conversational French. Not, I'm not perfect, but I can get by. And I asked the lovely lady behind the counter, can we have a table for two? To which she sort of looks at me like I was stupid as I turn around to basically a, a restaurant filled to the rafters with locals because obviously it's a Friday night. And she and I, I sort of a barter with her in French and eventually she gets a table out from the back and puts it by sort of the toilets and puts a little checkered gingham tablecloth down and sort of sits us down. Perfect. Okay, we've got the restaurant. We can eat something lovely. We sit down. Ten minutes goes by, we haven't been seen by the waiter or the waitress. Another ten minutes go by, still waiting. I managed to flag someone down, order two beers and a bottle of sparkling water, um, because obviously we're on the continent, and then I sort of say in my best French, can I have a menu please? To which the woman replies in French that I can understand, a very long sort of phrase back. I ignorantly just asked for the menu again in French, she gave me the same response and then I did it for a third time. I got the same response, but with two words on the end, which I did understand, which was poulet frite. To which I went, asked for a uh, menu again, and she just turned around and pointed to a blackboard that said poulet frite. And it turned out that this restaurant only had one item on the menu, which was chicken and chips. So we both got our chicken and chips. It was actually quite delicious. The dressing they used on the iceberg lettuce salad was delightful. No complaints there. But this restaurant was from a time gone by to the point where people were smoking in the restaurant. It was like a smoke-filled room. I felt like I was in a 1960s pub in the middle of Soho. Such was the plume of smoke. And we were eating dinner and, you know, I was like, okay, that's fine. We'll be able to get a nice early night ahead of the base sportive tomorrow. Good early start. But then the lights got dimmed as we were just sort of finishing up our plates and what we didn't realise was that this restaurant for this Friday night had a cabaret act. So this man walked out called Freddie Mitchell, who when I tell you, James, was the was basically Vic Reeves, the pub singer, Vic Reeves from Shooting Stars, just in French. And this bloke who was like in his 60s, slightly overweight, had a white shirt that was sort of undone to the navel, had a gold chain in his sort of curly, hairy chest was sort of just walking around the restaurant singing sort of 70s rock songs in really bad broken English, not to the tune of the song, while this restaurant of sort of men and women in their 50s and 60s from Hem went wild, sort of singing the tunes with him. And periodically he would walk up to the table singing in his like way and pass the mic to someone in the restaurant to then finish the lyrics. And me and my dad are sitting there and we're going, please don't be us, please don't be us. And lo and behold, halfway through a lyric, turns around, puts the mic in front of my mouth and I just went silent. And the entire restaurant just went completely quiet. It, I felt as if the lights had come on and they all turned around and stared at us. When that happened, we saw it as a sort of Freddy had to go off and do a little break because I think he needed to catch his breath. But once he did that, we saw it as our sort of cue to leave. So we managed to sneak out of the restaurant, paid um, and got home in what turned out to be the early hours of the morning. Such was our sort of entrapment in the restaurant. And then 
we sort of woke up the next morning slightly tired and a little bit hungover, having sat in on a, a cabaret act at a restaurant, which isn't the best prep for a, a Paris baseball team, but we felt like it was the sort of thing that they would have done back in the 1960s and 70s, so it did feel very in keeping with the race. Back to Magnus now, who tells us what life was like riding next to the late, great Fanco Ballerini on the stones of Roubaix. One of the most awesome sights for me on, on a bike was Franco Ballerini when he rode the cobblestones. It looked effortless. It was just a, a show of brute force and power. And, you know, the cobbles didn't seem to, to bounce him on the bike at all. It was just like he floated on top of them. For me, Franco was the guy that I would look at and try and analyze what he did and how he did it to sort of see if that was possible to replicate, to improve my riding. I think race tactics and just the overall package, i got to say Fabian is, is probably the, the, the best guy out there. Boonen, strong, had a great team around him. And it didn't really matter how he did it because you drag him into the finish to, to the velodrome, he'd win the sprint. He had the power to go from long range as well. So he was a very complete package. Whereas I think Fabian was more, he knew that if he dragged Bonin in, you know, he would get, get rolled in the sprint. So he had to race the race completely differently and race it in a way that, that I enjoy watching a, a lot more where you, you got to go on the move and, to me, there's nothing more beautiful than a, than a solo win in, in the Paris-Roubaix. The King, Sean Kelly, is one of the all-time greats and a two-time winner of Paris-Roubaix in 1984 and 1986. Strong, fast, smart, Kelly is the ideal rider to tackle the stones of Roubaix and it comes as no surprise he experienced such success there. However, even the very best have to learn their trade at Roubaix and here is Kelly's memories from his debut. Charged with looking after Flandria teammate Freddie Martins, the Irishman hit the floor no less than five times and was even reduced to tears. The cobbles and certainly the Paris Roubaix cobbles, I had never seen anything, I'd never ridden over anything. So I was you know, in there and I remember yeah, riding before the cobbles trying to keep Freddie Martins and uh, the guys who were going to do the final to the front. Uh, and uh, yeah, the fourth section of cobbles, of course, I started to go go backwards, backwards, and uh, yeah, then ended up in a group behind. But I think I crashed five times on that uh, Paris-Roubaix. And I remember in the end, before I actually stopped, I was actually you know pretty much crying. I said, how can you ride across those cobbles? It was wet, it was so slippery, and I was just scared of my life. And you know that is one of the bad memories of Paris-Roubaix for me. But... I managed to overcome it uh, yeah, by working on it and, uh, uh, over a number of years. So there we have it, ladies and gentlemen, our Paris-Roubaix podcast special. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, James, I think our main takeaway from it is that even if you are one of the very best cyclists of all time, the cobbles of the hell of the north are enough to level you down to even the most basic amateur it's true they are humbling uh to use greg lemon's words famously uh it doesn't get easier it just gets faster i think that paris just gets faster and it just gets harder i don't think anyone's worked out a proper way of cracking that nut because let's face it you just shouldn't ride 
things with such skinny tyres and skinny tubes and frail human bodies over such unforgiving terrain all day. It's the same way that there are masses of health and safety rules governing the use of power tools in heavy industry and plant machinery. If you applied the same health and safety officers to Paris-Roubaix, they would shut that thing down in an instant. It is. It should be illegal. It really should. And, and, long, and long shall those health and safety officers be kept away from Roubaix. As yes. It is, the best, it is the best day of racing in the cycling calendar. It really is. We will be getting the inaugural women's edition later this year, finally. Um, and we should all remain very excited. It is one of the very few races that I think most people can watch from start to finish. And I do think it's one of the very few races that can even attract and interest those that are not necessarily into cycling. Definitely, it's a good it's a good way in if you've got a uh, a mate or a partner or someone who doesn't want to be watching cycling, but you want to kind of get them involved in the sport, get them watching Paris Roubaix, and also get us watching it in October and hoping that maybe what with it being in October, we might get the rain that we always want. It's funny, isn't it, how we want it. We go, oh, yeah, it's really hard, and oh, we feel sorry for the riders, and aren't they amazing men and women to be able to do it? And then it's like, yeah, but I really want it to be horrible, so it's even worse for them. But it's such a it's a real schadenfreude situation we find ourselves in. But, hey, that's cycling, right? That's cycling. Um, again, if you liked this episode, um, make sure to like, share, review, send it to your cycling friends. Uh, we'll be back again next week, James. Um, but So in the meantime, go out. Enjoy a bike ride. Enjoy your Paris-Roubaix-inspired bike ride. And we'll be back soon. Stay frosty.